This is Runehammer. charge, to deliver a single crate from Olo to the Catholic coast via the land route. We had strict instruction not to go by sea for reasons we never discovered, but the lengthy doldrums of land travel were the very least of our troubles. That crate was evil. Whatever was inside that little machine, it weighed a ton, it would click and whir, vibrate at night doing something, something we never understood. But with each day, some new horror revealed itself to us. Piles of bodies, thick, noxious fog, strange forest fires. Day after day, calamity after calamity, my men disappeared, were torn to pieces, or simply fled. In time, we discovered what we were hauling, long before we reached our destination, which never happened. Less than halfway through the journey, the crate vanished, only drag marks and spatters of blood, and the last of my servants gone. I made a brief effort, down in the northern jungles there, looking for whatever, whoever had taken the box, but secretly... I happily failed at my mission. And that was the day I had to disappear, change my identity, and vanished into the endless alleyways of Grey, where no one has sought me out since. And since then I've learned that this object has changed hands more times than men can count, has been moved about, sought after, chased, died for, killed for, for centuries, maybe even millennia. An object that is whispered of in hallways, corridors, in great stone towers, and mage sanctums. Something called the RPG mainframe. But I'll never speak of it again, and this conversation never occurred. There it is, that's the pig noise. That means it's time for the RPG mainframe. Greetings, my programs. It's all Hank and Fernell here. Back once again, it's the lyrical master, P-Punk Damager, Damager to the people. I don't know the words to that, but it's kind of cool sounding when you're getting amped up, do a podcast. Okay. What's going on? What 
What is going on? Um, what are we doing? Oh, yes. I recall. I was only feigning ignorance. <laughs> hey, happy Scaretober, everybody. Welcome back to Runehammer. We're going to play D&D like big old badass. At least that's what I've been trying to do. And that's what we're going to do together. I got a juicy, juicy meal for you today here on the podcast for episode 32. And this is this is a tasty one. We are back. We have come all the way back to key mechanics. Now, it has been pert near Coon's age since we have talked about key mechanics. Now, I believe that is actually a uh, saying that refers to the lifespan of a raccoon, which I think is 17 years. Or is it 40 years? What's the oldest raccoon on record? <laughs> okay, I digress. Anyways, it's been a long time since we have done anything with key mechanics. Some of you guys may be familiar with my key mechanics series on YouTube. Now, the reason there aren't like scores of these videos, because uh, everybody seems to really like them, but there aren't zillions of them because that would undo the word key. That Then it would just be lots of mechanics. Uh, it actually takes a lot of time to figure out what could qualify as a key mechanic. Um, and, you know, I, I'm sure you guys know by this point, if you're here on Patreon, that uh, I don't have some kind of master plan here. I have no idea what's going on. I am discovering the deeper theory of RPGs as I play, as I go, as I dungeon master. So these things only dawn on me when they find their way into my table, usually at the behest of players or usually like in the sort of the spur of the moment. So we'll be playing and something will come up and, and there it will reveal itself. And it's sort of a collaborative creation of, of dungeon master and player together. And then I get the little light bulb. Oh, oh man, that that is something. And keep, keep a note right at that moment. Don't stop play because of it unless it's just like, you know, world shattering. <laughs> but, you know, keep a note of it and say to yourself, this is something I want to do next game and the game after that and the game after that and the game after that. If, if it's that potent of a mechanic, then it could be counted as a key mechanic. So can I quee, can I quiz quit quittling around the bush? Quit quiddling around the bush and reveal what is this key mechanic we're going to talk about today. Today we are going to talk about the fourth T. Oh my God. We've been talking about the three T's for two years now. Timers, threats, and treats. And how you use these three bullets to design spaces or rooms in your game as a dungeon master. And also how you, you, you use such a simple system to keep it in memory rather than written form. But... It's just too important. I'm going to throw down the fourth T, and the fourth T is the target. Now, in ICRPG, all of you guys have uh, had a big positive response to the concept of using a single target for any given block of gameplay. And this replaces the, uh, the model, which uses different save DCs, armor classes, challenge ratings, and all this kind of stuff to create different variability and difficulty within a block of gameplay, right? This is the 5e mindset, is that you may need a DC 13 save against a spell, and then moments later you're rolling an attack against an armor class of 21, and then moments later you might be making a climb check against a DC of 15, right? And it's a high variability, which offers a lot of detail to the game. ICRPG has always taken this stance, though, that this numeric variability is not useful or really even salient to the fun of the game and actually can create confusion and eat time at the table because of figuring out what this number is, forgetting 
or uh, just asking what it is at any given moment. I think also this numeric variability creates some confusion for players for how powerful they are or what the relative level of difficulty is relative to their power at any given moment. So if in a battle I have target numbers that are ranging from 21 to 12, how powerful am I in this encounter? Well, you would have a lot of detail there. And Pathfinder and D&D both take this stance that your relative power or the relative difficulty is a highly complex and compound equation that varies from moment to moment. And that's the joy of their game design, right? But ICRPG is not those games and it takes a different approach, which says really the only salient number we need to roll against is the target, and it can represent everything we're rolling against. It is a blanket level of difficulty. So you may have an extremely tough enemy, right? And so in a variable target system, they would have a high armor class. But in ICRPG, they have other means of resisting damage, like ignoring small amounts of damage, uh, regenerating, and so on and so forth. But the roll success factor is all brought down to a single number, and this is the target. Okay, now everybody's familiar with that. That the target is how we've been playing. Oh, okay. So now that we have that that sort of refresher on what the target is and why it's changed so much of the game, at least for me, I mean, it is it has been a huge table changer, especially when it comes to speed and when it comes to players understanding how difficult something's to be, going to be. But now it's time to take that to a, a really a higher level. So the old level that we used to be at is that for each space you design, or maybe even a whole night of gameplay, you have a target. And let's be honest, 12 is what it winds up being a lot of the time. 12 is a really balanced target that is somewhat difficult, but manageable. You're gonna get kind of half and half results through your night. And 12 is just a natural place for the target to wind up being. So relative to 12, you might say, well, I want this room to be more challenging, so I'm going to make it a 14. I want this room to be really easy because it's sunlit, we're outdoors, we're in the grass, it's going to be a 10, right? And, and this 12 kind of anchor point is what I think a lot of us have been using in our games to get that target down so that when gameplay comes and starts happening, you just lay this one number out and everybody's rolling against it, right? We've been doing that for a while now and it's been working great. But what I have been introducing in my Gauntlegrim game is now this concept of target damage. Uh, we could also call it a variable target or dynamic target, but target damage to me sounds the most fun. Now, originally, I invented this sort of mechanic as something that a monster would use. A monster is doing target damage, um, namely belching out a bunch of smoke, and the more smoke that it sort of emits or <laughs> um, spews uh, into the battle, the harder it gets for the players to do anything, to make dex checks, to see, to make attacks, right? And so the, the monster is damaging the target. So each turn that the monster takes, he damages the target by one. So the target gets one more difficult when this smoke starts to fill this chamber. That's how it all began, was the concept of target damage. So then I started realizing there's a counterpoint to target damage, which is target relief. So in our second session of Gauntlegrim, we had this huge magical storm at the top of a tower 
Where better to have a magical storm than the top of a tower, right? And this magical storm emits all this darkness and lightning, and it's crazy. But it's variable. It's rolling across. It's, it's you know how storms, they come and go. They grow and swell and then recede and then have an intense moment. And the way that we represented that is each round, we would add a D4 onto the target for how badly the storm was, was affecting the characters, how, how much more difficult it was making everything. So adding a D4 to the target. So I think our target was a 13. So in the worst case scenario, you have a 17 target when this storm is making it impossible to see and very difficult and even like slippery on surfaces because of the rain and all this stuff, right? And this was my first real version of a truly dynamic target. Each round, this target could be quite low or really prohibitively high. And the characters, the players, are sort of hanging on what this D4 modifier role is gonna be. Now. After just a few rounds of this, players very quickly realize, like, this is freaking brutal. (laughs) We can't do anything. Like, none of our roles are working. Now, this shouldn't be a moment of frustration for players, but rather it's where they realize they have to stop what they're doing and address this problem because they cannot make any roles. They couldn't even make, like, perception roles. They're just lots of failed roles. And so this is when the the counterpoint of this sort of target damage concept came up. And I really have to credit um, my my friend and player, Steve, who's playing uh, this character called Brother Karnov, who's our healer. And Brother Karnov realized that finally there was a use for light. And so he cast light spell and sort of dispelled the darkness that this storm was was bringing and so he nerfed my variable target mechanic all the way down to one or zero so each turn you could either have no addition to the target or one or a plus one so a little bit of storm was still making things slightly difficult so just with this light spell this was a huge moment in tabletop for me i do not really have another example when a light spell was awesome. Now, a light spell has been useful now and again, especially in sort of in a role play kind of loosey-goosey way, but I've never known a light spell to be as useful and badass as something like an area buff or a healing nova, right? So like healing nova, you are directly addressing the fundamental balance of the combat, which is damage versus heals, right? But with a light spell, I mean, maybe what? You're you're helping some perception, you're you're seeing enemies that are attacking or maybe you're dealing with some magical darkness. Or something. I don't know. I just I've never run into a particular case where just how much light characters had access to was hugely mechanically important. And this was the first time it's like he held up this his staff and like illuminated the storm and cast most of it back. And it completely changed the momentum of what the characters were trying to do, which is fighting this creature called a phase Hulk, which maybe we'll talk about in another podcast. Either way, what happened is I realized I had a two-sided mechanic that is almost as powerful as damage and healing, which is, you know, basically the core mechanic of almost all RPG combat. And this is target damage versus target relief. Now, this can take so many forms, but most importantly, don't let this replace hard and easy. Again, talking in ICRPG terms here, hard and easy are plus three, minus three, two target, Right. So normally the DM will use hard and easy to create uh, difficulty variability in things. And also a lot of player abilities use hard and easy to, you know, express skill or power. 
That mechanic still is continuing, but is independent. Target damage and relief are so frightening and so exciting because they compound the hard and easy mechanic. So when you have a lot of target damage, say four, your target just jumped up by four, and now something that would be hard is seven higher than the previous target. Seven higher, that's brutal. If the previous target was 12, then the storm rolls in and you need to make a hard roll, it's gonna be a 19. That In ICRPG terms, a 19 is very, very hard to roll. In Pathfinder, it's pretty easy, but um, very hard to roll that in ICRPG. And so you can see how target damage and target relief compound the hard, easy mechanic. Now, this is one method. This is my randomized target damage, right? So each round that it's my turn, I'm adding a random amount of target damage by rolling a d4 and adding it to the target. Now, you could also make this a fixed target damage. And what I mean by that is you could either escalate or descend on each turn by a fixed increment. Let's say that increment is one. To make it simple, just like my smoke belching monster, each time it's my turn, I quite simply add one to the target. It's just that simple. Now, this makes it a little more difficult for the players to counter or to relieve the target. So let's say that three times my smoke has emitted and it's filling the room. So now I'm plus three on what the original target was. I've gone from, say, 13 and I've jumped up to 16. A character is going to need something in this case, since it's smoke, I don't think light would really work. What you need is a wind spell to dissipate this. And I would need to know how many increments I had jumped up. So you do want to have a little scratch pad maybe so that I can bring it back to the original target. Or maybe I just remember, right? It's pretty simple numerics. But the character casts gust of wind or storm or whatever. It clears the smoke out. And then I look down at my notes and I'm like, oh, what was the original target? That was like 25 minutes ago. Oh, it's 13. Okay. So the wind spell clears out all the smoke, whoop, and we are back to our 13 target. Well done. And again, we have this target relief concept. I am just super excited about target relief because I think we finally have a way to make bards and group buffers and group support classes or players really, really matter. This is a player who doesn't necessarily always want to kill the enemies. They want to relieve the environmental pressure. That's, you know, that's the bardic role in a lot of ways, right? Is that you you boost characters, uh, like blanket-wise. You don't boost them to do a specific thing. You just help the group, right? That's your mindset. I will help the group. That's kind of like your vow. And with target damage and target relief, you finally give this player a real meaty chunk of the game to sink their teeth into that's almost as meaty as damage and healing now i got a few examples to throw at you that could either be randomized in your target damage or could be fixed or incremental in the way that you damage or relieve the target so we've obviously got this maelstrom idea right there's this crazy magical storm it has rain lightning darkness all this stuff that comes and goes in a sort of a random way that makes things more difficult i mean anybody who's ever tried to play golf in a thunderstorm knows exactly what i'm talking about okay next i have the alien hive so do you remember in uh, the second alien movie um, at one point, they're just sort of moving through this complex, but at another point, they come into the secreted resin, right? Where this is this hive, these uh, sort of um, uh, structures that the aliens create that they live inside of. They make this beehive-like shape that they can hide in and so on and so forth. But to me, this is at that moment, they walk or they turn this corner 
and the target is going to either go up randomly based on the shapes of the hive. So there are certain spots where it gets very tight and difficult to navigate and suddenly the target jumps quite a bit. There are other spots where the hive is being constructed, but maybe there are some metal walkways that are still clear, right? And so you could have a randomized version. Now an escalating or linear or fixed version could say that the further you walk into the hive, the more dense it becomes. The narrower the corridors, the higher the temperature, the more slippery and slimy the surface. And so each turn, we're going to escalate the target by one because this hive structure makes things more difficult turn after turn after turn. How do you relieve this? Well. This is something that a player should be thinking about. How do we relieve this? Well, can the, can the resin be broken? Can it be burned? Can it be melted? Can it be, you know, dug away? Uh, is there a way to go around? <laughs> that's not really target relief. That's called giving up. <laughs> okay, but anyways, there's how that alien hive kind of plays into a, a target damage or a dynamic target mindset. Another great one is fear. Fear can really increase the difficulty of doing anything. Now, Anyone who has gone down into their basement to get their laundry and had a very creepy feeling that someone is back there in the corner because there's a weird shadow knows that it is suddenly more difficult to get your laundry, like you drop a sock. It's, it, it, it happens every stinking time. You have a, a chill of fear run up your spine because you thought you saw something in your creepy basement and you drop a freaking sock. You dropping that sock is the higher target. And so fear can be a great way to, to do target damage. And this is something awesome that like an elder sort of or eldritch or otherworldly abnormality type enemy, you know, formless horror kind of things, the way that they can be more potent and deliver their concept rather than just being, you know, orcs with tentacles. A scary enemy is not only lashing at you and breaking your brain and dissolving your equipment and stuff, um, making you forget your family and stuff like this. <laughs> but they are actively damaging the target by making the party afraid. So the, the, the first time they're seen is a perfect example. They actively frighten the, tar the, the party by raising the target significantly. So here's where you could do a descending effect. So when the, the Eldritch monster first appears, you could say that damages the target with four. So it instantly lifts the tar target by four, and then each DM turn that clicks down by one as the party sort of acclimates to the fear. So even though I'm descending each turn, I still, I have a new model by which to play with target damage via monster. And this creates dread in the characters. They hate high targets and they learn to work around and role play with targets and think around how to get relief. So even though I'm descending, I'm still inventing a new way to play with the target dynamically. So finally, I have a few more that are just sort of obvious. I have uh, heat and slime. So heat can just constantly increase or can fluctuate in a nice way. And same with like sliminess. Sliminess can kind of escalate on you, can, can descend, or can kind of be random, like there's splotchiness, you know what I mean? And so these kinds of things just give you this variability. And here's the magic of it. Things like fear, heat, slime, the hive, the storm, they're all can be worked against by a creative player. The slime can be burned away. The heat can be alleviated with a cold spell or with a wind spell, right? The smoke can be banished with wind. Uh, darkness can be damaged or can be banished with light. Fear can be banished with a blessing or with like a, a remove fear type spell. And so not only are you getting all these new mechanics to play with as a dungeon master, you're getting new ideas to create spell options for players. You're offering them new spells, and these are going to be target relief spells. 
because they've got to be saying to themselves, we don't want to get into another situation with like an 18 target that was messed up. So this next round or this next milestone, I need to get a spell that can help me, you know, relieve this kind of target or something to that effect. So anytime you bring a new, what I would call a key mechanic into the game, there should be a lot of player options, including spells that let them work against that new mechanic, let them try to relieve it. Um, another great effect of, of, that's going to happen because of that is that the buffing character really becomes much more powerful, mainly because enemy armor is part of the target. Really the two hit number, right? is, you know, two hit and hitting an enemy are often uh, sort of equated as armor. And so if, if I'm the one casting the light spell and I bring the target down by three, I'm kind of in a way nerfing enemy armor. I'm making it easier for us to hit the enemies. And, and to me, that's, that's huge. That makes a buffing character far more effective and more important to the group. And I think that's a good thing to accomplish in your game. One thing that you want to do to make sure that this works out is to always have your target revealed. So I know that in some games, there's a bit of an element of you're not sure what the armor class is of the enemy and so forth. You know, you're just getting a, a report of that was a hit or that was a miss and players need to sort of figure out their target. But for this to be really effective, you want that target to be out in the open at all times. You want them to see what's happening so that they can actively work against it. Is it totally meta? Hell yeah but it's okay. <laughs> okay, so finally, when in doubt and you're working with dynamic targets, a great system to use is the sort of factor system. So the factor system uh, is, is basically a way of saying, what factors are in your favor? Well, we have spiked boots that when we're climbing, we also have that nice rope that we paid so much for, and the sun is out. Okay, that's three factors. And then on the DM side, I say, well, it's a super icy surface and uh, there's crows that are flying around trying to get you off this cliffside. So I only have two factors. Let's say our base target is 10. So my factors raised it up to 12, but they had three factors. So that brings it down to nine. So this is the negotiation version of dynamic targets, is that we're negotiating what the target is based on the factors that the players are bringing to alleviate a difficult target. So I tell them, hey, the target is 10, but because of the vultures and the ice, it's 12. And they go, well, we have that super nice rope. And I'll, ooh, okay, well, it's down to 11. Oh, and we also have the spiked boots. Oh, okay, cool. Then we'll bring it down to 10, you know, and so on and so forth. And so this is a simpler way, a little bit less dynamic, a little bit crazy, or less crazy, I mean, a little more sort of reserved, a way to get sort of a agreed upon number, more of a negotiation style. But it's another way to make the target dynamic. And the reason you want to make the target dynamic is to let players see that they can affect it. That's what I realized. That's the epiphany that I had is that the fun of making a dynamic target isn't that the dungeon master gets to wiggle all over the place. The fun of it is that the players have a new thing to actively combat that makes everything easier. So they can blanket affect their chances of success by acting against this mechanical element of the game. And to me, that makes target damage and dynamics targets a key mechanic, the fourth T. So consider that. Tell me what you guys think and give it a try in your game and see what happens. You know, design a room with a fourth T in there with the old target damage going on and then maybe a couple ideas for target relief so that if players get stumped, you can even drop some suggestions because this might be a really new concept to them. 
But there it is. There's my thought about the ominous, the much whispered about and rumored of fourth T. So welcome to Runehammer, guys. Welcome all new patrons who've been signing up. It's great to have you guys and everyone who's been upgrading their pledge. Oh, my God. You humble me, my shield wheel. My shield wheel. <laughs> Actually, a shield wheel is like a, some kind of Da Vincian siege machine. Look out over the hills. It's coming. A shield wheel. It's blocking everything <laughs> and rolling and stuff. <laughs> so anyways, thank you, everybody, and welcome having a great time really working mainly on commissions and Patreon this month. YouTube is, I've been slacking off on the YouTubes, but uh, honestly, you know, Patreon is where I really like putting my effort and there's some real treats coming as far as commission work. I've been getting a little more involved with my, with my customers, um, especially the cryptids monster manual with Eric bloat for uh, dark places and demigorgons. So I'm doing all the art and the layout on that book. I'm really excited about that book. It's just been a very big project. So Pretty cool book with some really weird monsters in it. Fun times. Um, also, uh, you know, I've been cleaning house in a way. So all you guys uh, have heard a little bit about Blood and Snow. And thanks, everybody, for the kind words on Blood and Snow. But also the Junked expansion pack um, and uh, Xenomorph Dead Zone is going to be kind of making a reappearance here. And to me, this is kind of just called cleaning house. I like have creative projects that kind of uh, don't come to fruition and then, you know, maybe a year passes and I think I'm like, man, those are really cool. We should let's try to get that done. And and to me, that's kind of like cleaning out your garage. And so we're going to try to get those things released um, as soon as possible with the, the help of my great proofreaders and uh, uh, Alex Alvarez, who's been really helping me with a lot of writing and see where we can take this stuff and really get these things done, get them out there and give you guys more options for your tabletop. Um, and finally, hey, I just want to invite everybody, please feel free to drop a line to me directly, either via Patreon message or via email, even on Facebook. Just do not hesitate. If you have any questions, comments, if something rubs you wrong or rubs you right, just let me know. Um, a great example of this is with, um, what was it, Stash Hound, I believe his name was, <laughs> his username. And uh, when Blood and Snow came out for the $5 patrons, you know, he's kind of like, I don't know, I feel kind of like this is a little bit of a poke in the ribs here. And that really, I, he opened my eyes. He was right. I am not above admitting I'm wrong. I'm actually very good at that skill. <laughs> when you're as dim-witted as I am, you got to be comfortable admitting you're wrong. So it's just kind of like, yeah, you know, you're right. It's, everybody should be getting this. And so I think it's a good example of like, feel free to tell me, you know, what's going on and let me know, um, you know, what's coming next and uh, if, if things are going as they should, and just, I just want to invite everyone that you can talk directly to me about anything and I'll be like, hell yeah. And, uh, we will find an accord, my shield wall, my lumpy headed three eyed weirdos. I don't, I don't know if we ever were three eyed. That takes it a little far. Having three thumbs is one thing, but three eyes, I don't know, it's a little crazy. Okay, guys, so that is my talk about target damage. Really excited about it. It's going to be in every stinking game I play from now on, um, Especially Gontelgrim. The third session of Gontelgrim is coming up this Sunday. So I'm psyched. I'm psyched. Get to play that D&D. Okay, thanks everybody for tuning in. I'm going to get out of here. There's all kinds of work to do and it's all cool. So I'm going to go jump into it. And uh, hey, have a great weekend. May your dice roll high. Strength, honor, and beer. Yeah. Sacred Inferno signing off. See you guys.